Hi and welcome. You are listening to the Pursuit of Wellness podcast. I'm your host, Daria Tiesler, health educator, ex-professional athlete, personalized and lifestyle medicine advocate, registered nutritional therapist, personal trainer, performance coach, and a founder of Daria Tiesler Wellness. Your search for wellness is just about to begin. Each time you set your frequencies on top pursuit of wellness, you are going to discover something new about yourself, your health, your body, your mind, and your soul. We are podcasting from London, so hi to all Londoners that decided to join me and to anyone who is new to Pursuit of Wellness podcast. In this podcast, we explore basics of psychology of human behavior and we have a small intro into mindfulness. Five, four, three, two, one, let's go. I'd like to introduce my guest for this podcast, Dr. Sula. She's an expert in health psychology and mindfulness. Dr. Sula is focused on evidence-based psychology and holistic intervention for those that experience long-term health conditions. Hi, Sula, and welcome to Pursuit of Wellness podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my invitation. And I go straight into my first question. How did you start your journey into mindfulness and health psychology? I started my journey into health psychology doing my undergrad degree at Leeds University where I studied psychology and there was a module which was health psychology which was really fascinating and it talked about this area of research called psychoneuroimmunology which is about how stress impacts health. So there were some really interesting studies showing how wound healing, for example, was impacted substantially by stress levels. And I just thought it was so fascinating to see that mind-body connection. And then I kind of abandoned psychology for a little while because careers in psychology are hard (laughs) to come by and pursue. So I did marketing for a little while, but I didn't really enjoy marketing. And it was in a small company my friends all left the university city that I was in. So it was really stressful. And I'd always experienced on and off recurrent chronic urinary tract infections. And then I got a big bout of them and they just didn't subside. And I think because I was so stressed, because my immune immune system was so impacted by this, the stress and not really processing what was going on for me. And there was a lot of pressure, a lot of external expectations and lack of direction I just got really really ill and then as I got really ill I got really depressed and it was just a vicious cycle and my dad was doing a master's in mindfulness at the time because he's a psychiatrist and he suggested me doing mindfulness and I was actually quite offended because I was having real (laughs) physical sensations that were causing me such disruption and I was going to all these different specialists but his partner's a clinical psychologist so she presented it to me in a way that was quite acceptable and then I watched this video which I think you can watch for free online called Healing in the Mind which is a documentary about the founder of mindfulness as we know it really John Kabat-Zinn running one of his first mindfulness-based stress reduction courses and I was intrigued anyway so that's where I started my mindfulness practice and the more I was able to practice mindfulness the more I saw the benefits for my 
psychological distress, but also my physical symptoms started to subside. So I was sold from there. Right. Uh, you said what I actually believe. It's practicing mindfulness, mm. right? And I think uh, that's what uh, also said John Kabat-Zinn, right? It's uh, so many people talk about mindfulness. Mindfulness is like a trendy word, right? Mm, yeah. That's why we have in this conversation. I want to set the base. But what we need to remember is about practicing. Absolutely. It's the same as practicing wellness. Absolutely. It's not just trendy word. No, you wake up in the morning and from the moment you wake up, you're practicing your health, you're practicing your wellness, you're practicing your... Uh, mindfulness and again what is amazing that behind w- why you started your journey is a beautiful story right so it's, uh, it's amazing that this is matches and uh, it's always more believable and we just want to get that piece of you right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i i, I <clears throat> tend to agree that it is a practice and it is a trendy word and i think when i'm presenting it as a strategy for for clients the trap that they fall into is thinking well i did i was in pain i tried that practice and my pain was still there and i didn't feel calm therefore it doesn't work so i have to be very transparent at the beginning and keep revisiting the concept this is a cumulative practice and john kabat-zinn's got this really nice metaphor of you want to be weaving the parachute before you jump out of the plane right and i think that's a really nice way to to think about it if you can if you keep doing that weaving keep doing that practice when you need it to hold you in those difficult times there's no quick fixes yeah right and Unfortunately. one of those questions uh, i'm going to have to you why we are in this vicious cycle of doing the same things right and uh, you know we go into that in few moments it is a wellness podcast what does wellness mean to you i think it's a whole body concept so there's physical wellness obviously and then there's the mind and the two are interlinked and i think people may perceive that wellness is more about you know doing nice things and self indulging and all the lovely instagram ready ideas of wellness doing morning yoga but actually it's those times where it's really difficult to practice wellness it's scaling back it's saying no to things it's prioritizing and all the 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 bits that actually are quite difficult to do and they don't leave you feeling all jazz handy afterwards is a hard work <laughs> yeah absolutely but the i guess it's it's achieving act- to answer your question quite concisely i think it's achieving or working towards an equilibrium so that if it slips either side you, you're containing yourself and you're not slipping too far off the off whatever wagon that you're on right i i have very similar uh, explanation to that and i think many uh, guests on this podcast uh, actually share the vision that yeah. we are presenting right now let's explain a few basic terms right what is mindfulness I think I always describe <coughs> it not straying really far from John Kabat-Zinn's depression uh, depression <laughs> definition which is um it's a present moment awareness but it's non-judgmental and it's compassionate and I think the the non-judgmental and the compassionate are the really key parts of what mindfulness is everyone can practice the kind of clinical attention focus part 
But if you're doing it with a judgmental attitude or you're being quite critical, oh, look, you're worrying again, silly you. Why are you always doing this to yourself? Then you're not practicing mindfulness. You're practicing an attention practice, but you're not containing yourself with with the, the calmness and the gentleness that it's intended. And you're losing a big, a big part of what mindfulness is. And I went to see John Kabat-Zinn talk quite a few years ago now, and he said that the name mindfulness can be misleading and he likes to call it heartfulness because it's actually a practice from the heart, that intention, that compassionate intention is a really key component of it. So it's a little bit as uh, I think human potential coaching because human potential coaching is based on the heart. Oh, I'm not right. familiar with it it's, at all. Uh, it's my Manel. He does the human potential coaching. And oh, right. Actually, that is the heart-based coaching. So you are having the feelings of your heart mm. and you focusing on your heart instead of focusing on, if I can say like that, what the brain does it. Right. And so you always come back to the heart. Yeah, and I guess it is quite <clears throat> similar because mindfulness is grounding you in your body, in your physical experience and then containing the wider experience around that. Right, okay, so what is then health psychology? I don't think it's easy to conceptualize health psychology because it's such a huge area, but broadly speaking, it's the the area where psychology meets health. So whether that's how psychological factors influence health outcomes or how health interacts with psychological outcomes, it's the the merging between the two and there's different areas in health psychology. Some are focused on more public health strands of of thinking. So how you create effective promotion and intervention to create positive behaviors and preventative health strategies and things like that. Then there's behavior change. So when people are already doing behaviors that or activities that might be harmful to health, like smoking or not exercising or overeating, how you can effectively help them or support them to change their behavior. The area that I'm, I have my practice within and I'm more familiar with is how we support people with all of those things, but in the context of them already having long-term health conditions that are causing them substantial distress. So it, it's it's more focused on how that distress impacts on the health outcomes, how you manage that distress and how you manage the health outcomes at the same time. Right. And the last question is in relation to uh, behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's also a, a buzz therapy that people might know more about now as, as mindfulness has increased. So very broadly speaking, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy model is that the way we think about things impacts on how we approach things, how we respond to things and what we do. And our emotions are also impacted by our ways of thinking, but there's no one causality, all these factors are interacting. So our thoughts, our behaviors, our emotions, and also our physical sensations are all interacting. When we're in particular distress, our mind might be running circles around us with all these perhaps more negative lines of thinking that are tipped more towards the negative and away from the realistic 
or more objective way of th- seeing things. And that obviously has an impact on how we emotionally feel about it. It has an impact on our body if we're stressed, if we're feeling really bad about ourselves we can feel that impact in our body if you think about when you get really anxious about something and your heart races for example and all of those factors are, are, are then interact uh, impacting on our behavior so we're doing things that might not be very helpful and might be keeping that cycle going so in CBT it's trying to work out whatever the the client is experiencing whether that's long-term health conditions whether that's depression and anxiety disorder what are the key maintaining factors within that model that are keeping it going and how can we make a change and usually CBT starts with trying to make some behavioral change to get a, a baseline that's better than where the client started with and then as that creates a bit more of a stable equilibrium then we try and look at some of the thought processes the rules and the assumptions that people might be applying rigidly or without evaluation of whether how true that is right we we talk a little bit about mindfulness it's like health psychology behavioral therapy and we overlapping is why do we do what we do someone wants saying wake up wakes up in the morning and says I'm not going to eat anymore this croissant because I know it's bad for me. Mm. We all know those things, right? Why someone again picking that croissant and it's so difficult to change yeah. that behavior? Why is this happening? I think that's a million dollar question. I think it 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 depends. There's a lot of different theories of what impacts our our health behaviors, for example. I think the most accurate answer would be there's so many factors and it it is obviously very individual and there are some key areas that impact it so emotion is a key one and we're not really taught to tolerate difficult emotions so we go for the easy fixes or the fixes that we've found help us in some way and that becomes habitual and then habits are really hard to break so it might be born from somewhere different to what then maintains it if that makes sense So emotions are one part, just general habit formations another part. Also sometimes we hold unhelpful beliefs about how things are working and we're talking about patterns of thinking in cognitive behavioral therapy. A, a common trend I see is that all or nothing thinking. <laughs> yeah, my my next question was actually about this all or nothing behavior and I've actually read uh, on your Instagram you had few uh, great uh, posts. It is like, why is so common, right? People mm. struggle and then they go in like, let's say, weight loss. Mm, yeah. Right? So common, right? Comes January, I want to lose weight. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Yeah. Six weeks into the process, yeah. <laughs> stop, right? It's all or, all or nothing. Explain us a little bit about that that post specifically about the all or nothing behavior. I got so many messages saying, are you talking about me? Because <laughs> it is so common. I think actually all or nothing lines of thinking and behavior make perfect sense because as our brains have evolved we want we think categorically it's easier to put things into boxes because then we it takes less brain power to work out how things work if I know that the 7:20 train is always late I quickly work that out and I know that going for the 7:30 train is is my better option or whatever. So we don't it doesn't take up so much brain power. And that and categorical thinking then underpins this all or nothing. We put it in one box or we put it in the other. 
it's adaptive in in some respects but it is obviously it can turn into a bit of a, a trap and when we lose that gray area it can sabotage us because it 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 helps us to abandon things earlier oh well i can't do that if you've given it a couple of goes and it was really difficult rather than looking at the nuances what were the barriers what made it difficult that kind of thing so uh, so doesn't mean that uh we condition naturally to something that we want to avoid because it's easier for our brain or we i guess we're conditioned to categorical thinking and then when we learn we learn how things work for us i tried that diet it didn't work therefore it won't it won't work for me going forward or i just can't lose weight or whatever it might be it actually is a lot of effort and we can be trapped in that that perception that box of thinking and it takes somebody else or some additional support or information to help us step out of that which isn't always available to us right so one of the ways to break this down right break down yeah to get out from this cycle is finding support right? absolutely yeah if 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 you feel trapped in a pattern of behavior i would absolutely recommend to anything else uh, we could do to break the cycle yeah absolutely can you also. share with us yeah i think if there's particular behaviors that you've spotted that are just thrown out the baby's thrown out with the bathwater it might be useful first of all just to monitor what's going on when you go to do that behavior so if it was i always say i'm going to go for a run at 7:30 in the morning and every time it gets to it it just doesn't happen one is a cre- increase in awareness and we can do this just by making that commitment i'm going to make a record then so i'm going to set the intention three times a week and then when it comes to those times if i notice okay i'm i'm setting the, i'm going to do it and then i just decide i'm not going to do it those are crucial moments to explore what's going on in your mind what's going on in your body what are what are the what are the recipes kind of behind this and i always encourage people to notice the thoughts write down the thoughts and that helps to see that all or nothing thinking or the high expectations or i've only got 20 minutes now and so it's it's not going to be worthwhile anyway and once you've got that data you can really evaluate is that true next time that comes up and you've only got 10 minutes will it still be worth it anyway and once you've got that information it helps you i guess set a better intention but it can also identify particular barriers so every morning i set the intention to go at 7:30 but then the dog messes me around for 10 minutes and then i actually don't have time or whatever it might be so then you can help reduce those barriers you know through pa- practical methods so it's like um finding again the root cause yeah. of why we cannot do it Absolutely. right instead of just setting up that big intention that pr- maybe is unrealistic mm. and every time we hitting at 7:30 in the morning we cannot do it yeah and you know from my experience of working with uh, clients uh, you know i used to be professional athlete so maybe it's uh, my brain is is easy for me right mm-hmm. i think it's easy for me that's what always manel tells me right it's easy for you right i cannot just do uh, i need the special intention and special focus to do a task but what i'm going if we set something that is not realistic without understanding that 
we're setting ourselves for failure. Absolutely. And actually that failure is not pleasant. No, not at all. Because we never achieve what we want. We kind of feeling upset uh, about this, that we never done it. We mm -hmm. might even feel guilty. Yeah. And it comes all the set of negative yeah, emotions absolutely. on the top of that, that we cannot achieve that goal. Exactly. And so it's just a really unpleasant cycle that you're in. And what, what you were saying there, the unrealistic expectations is, is key, because I think that's the trap that a lot of the time when we're trying to change our behavior, we fall into. We overestimate what's reasonable. If I've never jogged for the last year or six months and I don't have a baseline level of fitness or I don't enjoy jogging particularly, why am I going to be able to suddenly pull it out of the bag and do half an hour off the get-go? Maybe just test it out for 10 minutes. There's also another, and, and I guess that ties into the positive versus negative reinforcement. If you're setting yourself up for failure, you're getting the negative reinforcement. But on the other hand, there's um, an interesting book come out, which is called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg, which I was I um, read with enthusiasm because he talks about actually to, to set up new habits, you need to give that positive reinforcement much sooner than even having completed that behavior. If you want to jog first thing in the morning, when you put your trainers on, give yourself a pat on the back and a well done and actually verbalizing that like a woohoo or a yay helps the brain to learn you're doing a good thing here and then if you've only said I'll do 10 minutes you can easily give yourself reinforcement after 10 minutes and it's not deferred till half an hour when actually it doesn't feel so good and you felt like you didn't run quick enough. I think you know Sola that also comes from an uh, idea that we're very judgmental mm. towards ourselves. Yeah. We're very critical towards ourselves and we always comparing ourselves to others, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I see this uh, in this weight loss situation, right? Yeah. Uh, I want to look exactly as mm. someone next to me, but exactly, you know, you've been coming with this situation for the last 10, 15 years. Why do you expect things mm. to change which, within three months? Ah, because I saw someone doing that, this and that. And uh, I wondered, we all realize, realize that it's all about personalization, mm. right? And there is so many underlining issues that may be happening yeah. for you, right? And that's Absolutely. what we are uh, here talking about. Also on your, um, I have so many questions based on your Instagram, <laughs> very informative. What is the uh, avoidance cycle? Really simply, that is, if we if we perceive something to be scary, so if I was going to go to a party and I thought everybody was going to judge me because I don't like my weight or because I don't think I've got anything interesting to say and people are going to think I'm boring, if I don't go to the party, if I avoid it, then I don't get an opportunity to disconfirm that fear. I don't see that I go there and maybe I have some good conversations, but other conversations are actually quite enjoyable and some people act react quite nicely to me. The avoidance means I don't get to see that. So then that belief of what's going to happen is maintained and then the anxiety is maintained and actually grows and it might generalize out. So I don't go to the party, but then I start to shy away maybe from coffees out with whoever 
and so on. Right. So it's the, again similar situation. We have to look for root causes of our behavior. Yeah, and it seems. I don't know if it seems simple, but sometimes I fall into the trap of assuming people already know and they don't necessarily know. And actually sitting down and taking time to work out what is it that I'm afraid of or what is it that's making me feel really uncomfortable here? And that might take some brainstorming. I think writing down can be really, really helpful. And often in sessions with clients, I ask And what's the worst thing about that? Because it's not necessarily the end. I'll go to the party and I won't have anything important to say. You could easily assume that that's where the fear ends. But actually, when you say, and what would be the worst thing about that? Well, people will think I'm boring. And is that the worst thing? Well, if I'm boring, you know, I'm a failure or my career won't grow or whatever it might be. So keep asking until you kind of get to the end. And then that helps you at least a handle. I think you know what is happening uh, in the last five, six years is so much encouragement towards having conversations with yourself. Yeah. Because I think we went away from that, right? We covered by, you know, power of social media and, uh, mm. you know, we all pretending that all is fine, right? Yeah, yeah. That we all have like a beauty, beautiful hair and makeup, yeah. right? But the reality is the different. And I know this because sometimes I'm like, okay, I need to take another photo, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but having open conversation with yourself, and that uh, goes back to my last podcast, which uh, which uh, was done with uh, Sharada. And uh, she went through lots of chronic health conditions, but she said the moment I started to speak with myself mm. and have this non-judgmental and compassionate conversation, yeah. this is where I started to feel better. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think a lot of things take us away from that introspection and self-reflection. There's so much distraction. And then one of the key distractions being social media, which is the worst thing for compare and despair. And what we know is it, it's so uncomfortable to to feel sad, sadness, guilt, all that kind of stuff. And so we push it away without even giving it time to understand what it is. So part of wellness, I think, is committing to that time to see how you're doing and checking in with yourself. Yes, and I want to stress out here that uh, part of healing I can use this word, <laughs> or getting better mm. from chronic health conditions, whatever is that, Hashimoto, uh, ME, um, you know, gut problem, and we come in a few moments to irritable bowel syndrome, is resolving your beliefs, emotions, uh, you know, this, this toxic thoughts, yeah. which also may be ha uh, harming mm. you, right? I'm talking about the IBS because um, that is uh, very common uh, what I see in my clinic. And I know that you also have some interest in IBS and uh, and stress <laughs> and uh, how, how does it work, this why nearly every single person I see with gut issue or IBS always has some problem with anxiety, not loving yourself. Mm. They're very stressed, they're very wired. Why is that? <laughs> um, I think I think anxiety, experiencing anxiety definitely impacts on IBS. And we know that there's a high 
comorbidity between having IBS and having depression and or anxiety. It's not, I, I think it's useful to stress that the understanding of irritable bowel syndrome and its, its onset is not that psychological factors necessarily cause irritable bowel syndrome, but it's a, a biopsychosocial illness. So there are physiological factors at play that might have been the, the kickstart to particular bowel symptoms. But what we know then is there are these interacting biological, psychological, social factors that maintain the, the symptoms. So if I start to experience intermittent diarrhea and I'm really worried about having an, an accident and we also know that anxiety sometimes can help the bowels be a bit more um what's the Loose. word <laughs> Loose, yeah. um so if i've got that fear that means then that i might again talking about that avoidance cycle i might then try and avoid things and then that belief that i'm going to have an accident grows and the anxiety grows and that feeds into the bowel symptoms or it can be constipation also if i'm bunged up and I've got these beliefs that this is really bad for my health or irregularity is going to cause me substantial problems, I'll start cramping or maybe I'll need it later and I won't be able to do it because I'm in a meeting, then I might start doing things to try and help my bowels moving or I'll fixate on on the symptoms and do all these kind of things which actually upset the, the rhythm of the bowels. Right, and that's why um, when we're talking about gut healing program right and mm. i'm functional uh, practitioner functional nutritionist we always have in this phase one when we're talking about remove mm. right and my observation is and i know that the clinical and scientific literature confirm that sometimes despite of removing things like pathogen viruses bacteria uh, you know food mm. if someone does not get better mm. or they get better but they still they could be even better. There is always, always component of emotions, mm. beliefs, again, what, how, how did I grow, yeah. uh, how I was upbringing, right? And uh, does it uh, confirm this with you that there is always going to be that component of my mental side? Maybe not always, mm -hmm. but definitely, I mean, the, the trial that I was involved in, which was the distance delivered cognitive behavioral therapy, we had such good effect sizes and efficacy of reducing physical symptom severity and irritable bowel syndrome because a huge component of it was not, because these were refractory IBS patients. So that means that they had tried all the first line treatments, including different medications. Some of them had done the FODMAP diet and they still nonetheless had these symptoms. So this was the, the kind of next stage for them. And the, the CBT helped reduce their symptom severity and some of them no longer had diagnostic criteria IBS after the treatment because... Yeah, it was a, a full component mix of these factors, the, the perception of what bowel symptoms meant, the, the behavioral patterns of eating. I think the, the difficulty with things like the FODMAP diet or, or trying to address IBS via diet is people can get fixated on that and that can then lead into more unhelpful perceptions and behaviors and irregular bowel rhythms and so on you're just leading to the to the next question right <laughs> in uh, being scared of eating yeah right yeah. 
I've been in this industry for last 15, 16 years, right? Progressing from trainer, nutritional therapist, life coach, right? Then putting everything together. And I'm like shocked what is happening, mm. right? We trying to make broccoli more broccoli, <laughs> avocado more, more avocado, right? We we scared of eating. Mm. And I'm actually seeing on my clinic females that know what what they're supposed to do. They are knowing better grams and calories in every single food than I know, mm. but they still asking me what to eat. Yeah. It is that not sad? Yeah, it is sad. And I, I, I wonder, again, it goes back to what's the root cause? What, what is it? I guess in, in IBS, a lot of times the, the fear of, of eating or certain foods is that it will cause a symptom flare-up and what are the repercussions of that symptom flare-up for that person? So it's having to, to tackle those perceptions first. In the, the protocol for CBT for IBS that we developed, we look not necessarily at what people are eating. We just recommended they follow nice guidelines for IBS, which are very general. And it's, you know, having a good mix of vegetables, not too much fiber. If it's diarrhea predominant, not too little. If it's constipation predominant, that kind of thing. But the intervention itself focused on that avoidance of certain foods and trying to gradually reintroduce avoided foods. But the emphasis was on the regularity with which people were eating because what we were finding was people go huge amounts of time without eating because if if I eat then and that causes my bowels to then start moving and cause me problems, it's going to be terrible. So I'm not going to eat for that period of time. Well, then our bowels are deactivated. They're out of whack. You know, you've gone one day not eating for a huge period of time. The next day you're asking them to digest how, you know, however you're asking them to digest. So they never get a natural rhythm. And the original intervention, CBT intervention for IBS was called Regulate. And it was on that theme of the behavioral aspect of the intervention was just trying to establish a nice rhythm to help the bowels out. This is when you start. This is when you can calm down. This is when you start again. And I think that is uh, the the problem I see with uh, food map. Right. I use different mm. type of uh, modality of nutrition, cardiometabolic uh, nutrition, anti-inflammatory. I think elimination diet is only one diet mm. that I use, right, because it has finish and end. Mm. Uh, but I often see uh, clients coming with uh, staying on food map for two, three, four, five years. Yeah. I'm like, that's really, uh, you know, we need those foods because they are repopulating mm, our healthy gut bacteria so again finding the root cause uh, of the problem but we have to always i think be aware that maybe staying for two three four years on food map diet yeah. can cause the other side effects that as you said we're then afraid of eating absolutely and i think the fodmap diet i'm not an expert on it but the elimination is only meant to go on for a period of maybe six months it's max, 20, I think. 20 elimination diet um and is 28 days right yeah food map probably could be a little bit longer maybe. but still you need to reintroduce yeah gradually and, and build up the gut uh, tolerance absolutely. right because uh, again what i'm saying we we're building this um negative relationship with food yeah yeah i understand that uh, you know it's not nice to have the bowel symptoms mm. but definitely looking for another root causes as we're discussing if there is an emotion if there is any belief yeah if there yeah. is something beyond 
food. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay, that is going so well. I really <laughs> enjoyed this conversation. So, uh, Sula, what do you know about the connection between gut, brain and behavior? So, th- another growing buzz phrase is this brain gut axis and that I think it's a buzz phrase because there's growing research which is really exciting which is how the brain and the gut interact and the fact that it's a bi-directional relationship so just the brain obviously has an impact on all of our different body systems it it makes sure that our body's operating the way it should but what's unique about the gut is it's got its own mini nervous system in there with I can't remember how many neurons exactly it is but it it is more than the spinal cord which is obviously a, a substantial part of our central nervous system and what they're what the researchers are finding is that most of those neurons in there are dedicated to sending messages back to the brain So we get a lot of communication from our gut and then from that there's this follow-on area of research about the gut microbiota, microbiome and how the the dispersion of different colonies of bacteria and things like that can impact our emotions also. So it's the fact that there's, I guess, a bi-directional relationship. So stress impacts our gut, but our gut also is communicating back. So there's an interesting relationship between the two and if we're not getting the right nutrition that gives us uh positive energy yeah absolutely vibration good vibration (laughs) good good feeling right exactly i think there's a statistic that if we get in the the right nutrition it can impact our our mood up to kind of 10 or 15 percent it can you know make it more positive and increase dopamine or something like this is unbelievable it's the same with exercise yeah right what exercise can do for someone who has anxiety and depression is just there is only one thing we could say people need to do is just exercise right because you're feeling happier absolutely just from having a walk just from doing a few small weights training session to do pilates or yoga right yeah and it's uh, coming back to what we where we started today is that mindfulness and is what is right for me today Mm, yeah right i don't need to reach for a big 5k or marathon or three times 100 minutes uh, at the gym session right Mm. it's just stay assess where you are today yeah and what is going to work for you and that's is going to feel much better absolutely right yeah, and yeah. you're going to create create probably that positive circle of change let's uh, let's uh, quickly tell to our audience what are the stages of change uh, by petraska petraska is it pe- pe- no it's not Pesesky. Yes, the yeah, stages of change model. Uh, to be honest, I I just remember the pre-contemplation. Pre-contemplation, stage. right? And that's the, most of my yes, it's contemplation are. after and then is the maintenance stage, right? And yeah. I don't know if people know but the maintenance is uh, above six months. Yeah. So you really need to work hard for six months and yeah. then you might say okay, I'm slowly maintaining, but you know most of people want results within Six yeah. weeks, yeah, anything, <laughs> right? It's or it's a mental health or is a uh, body change. Are thoughts toxic? I think toxic's a 
a strong word and perhaps, yeah, unhelpful in that context. And actually, I tend to believe that it's not thoughts that are our, our issue necessarily when, when the thoughts are negative. It's our response to them. And across all the different clients I see from long-term conditions to obsessive compulsive disorder, it's really helpful having that conversation at the beginning. What do, what are the significance of thoughts? What is really useful in OCD is giving people the information that actually we have 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day. We can't physically be responsible for actively consciously generating all those thoughts. So it's just our brain kind of whirring away and it's different chemical mechanisms or whatever it's doing there. And so that means that all those thoughts can't be important, all those thoughts can't be meaningful, but it can be really no, really important to notice which thoughts you identify as important and usually they're the negative ones or, you, or the ones that give you pause for feeling a negative emotion. So it can be helpful to, to realise that you're probably dismissing thousands of thoughts that were neutral, thousands of thoughts that might have been quite positive and fleeting and a really nice metaphor is that the brain's like teflon for the good stuff it just slides right off but for the negative stuff it's like velcro and that's the same with our response to to thoughts so i think more problematic can be how we respond to thoughts rather than the thoughts themselves right and why is that happening why are we picking those more negative one or more harmful to us again it's adaptive because if we're trained to be on the lookout for danger. Back in our caveman days, we'd be trained to look out for the predator so we don't get eaten, that kind of thing, or run away from danger. So our brain's still wired up the same way. We've still got that same basic central nervous system operation. Nowadays, the way that we've evolved, the way society's evolved, the way that our conscious kind of processes have evolved means that we might be more likely to flag thoughts as the the danger, the predator, but it's still the same wiring from the caveman days. So that sets off that alarm flag, danger, but it's to our own internal mindscape rather than something external that we need to run away from. So what, we we realizing that we have that thought and what do we do with this? So, it, well, I don't know. It, it does depend, doesn't it? But it might be that, again, I think OCD is a nice condition to to give a bit of a taster of what goes on there. So the OCD intrusion comes in saying that there's potential harm there, whatever that is, whether that's a preoccupation with cleanliness, it, germs might have touched that thing. So that flags up and... Usually there's not a moment where the person has then said, okay, that's flagged up. Do I believe that? Let's just weigh that up. It's like, oh my God, flag danger, my responsibility to keep that safe. So then I'll have to wash my hands. And then the brain's got reinforced that signal. It's like, oh, I flagged up danger, did something, prevented that. And so then the next thing, that, that kind of neural pathway will be reinforced. So look other other dirty potential thing with germs and so that process goes on so it could be the same outside of OCD you've got that meeting at whatever you must make sure that you don't forget whatever but then again that might be quite protective because you've remembered something but 
then goes the ongoing stress process because the brain can't distinguish when it needs to give you these messages and when it can just relax and it can really interrupt your time for self-care because you're thinking through your to-do list without really trying to, if that makes sense. Yes, it makes sense. So does it mean, can we control our brain? Can we say that? We can't. Our thoughts, or what do we? How can we work then in a nice relationship yeah, with our brain? <laughs> with our brain, I like to conceptualize it as the the mind has its own mind, and but we can work with it. So instead of kind of pushing against it and trying to push thoughts away, which generally actually has the opposite effect and makes more calm and gives more resistance and anxiety, we can meet the thoughts, notice what they are and make that conscious decision. I'm going to attend to this now or I'm actually going to move my attention elsewhere. So that comes back to the mindfulness practice or any practice where you're reflecting on what your mindscape looks like, whether that's journaling, whether that's doing some form of CBT. But as a matter of principle, I think any practice that increases your awareness of the mindscape gives you that opportunity to create a bit of a healthy buffer between you and thoughts and seeing whether actually thoughts are facts or actually thoughts are just thoughts. Uh, it's a it's beautiful explanation at the end. And I love what you said. Mind has the own mind. Yeah. Right. And I think this is where we're going to uh, leave this conversation. And um, I just wrote myself. We must meet Yusula again because there is a lot <laughs> more to discuss yeah. about the mindfulness and um Just my one last question is, how can we find you? I think Instagram is probably the easiest, which is health underscore psychologist underscore UK. I've right. got my own username. <laughs> uh, I will add this also on the on the website so you can guys access that. And I really would love that you really mindfully listen to this conversation. Uh, I've learned lots, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's uh, always a, um opening of the heart. Uh, for the new experiences and new uh, new knowledge. Dr. Sula, I believe, as I said, we need to do another podcast and discuss more about mindfulness and maybe you can share some good practices with uh, us. And thank you for joining. Thank me. you. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for listening to Daria Tiesler Pursuit of Wellness podcast. If you want to know more, check out my website www.dariatiesler.com. Join us next time when I will be hosting Dr. Deepa and we will dig into a woman's health and autoimmune conditions such as Hashimoto. I suggest get all the women in your circle to join this podcast because we will share with you everything that can help you to live a healthier and more optimal life. And this for sure can help you to be more content with your body as well. Thank you and see you soon. This podcast intends to optimize your health and well-being and does not substitute medical advice. This podcast does not intend to sell and I do not get any profits from sales.